This is Back to Excited with your host, Arvind, and Acting the Fool from Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 134. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fool. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fulman? Uh, well, the Leafs have started losing again. I don't like that. But, no, that's uh, not very fun. But on the plus side, spring is basically here. Yeah, and, you know, from a realistic perspective, that might have more to do with mental health than a sports team, but we're not like ordinary people in that respect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyway. So we have uh, some, I guess, fun discussions today. Basically, we're going to talk about uh, two Leafs-related things. Um, and sorry, I realized I should have asked this before the podcast when we do our little chat to make sure we, we have this. Do we have any bad takes this week? No. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, two. Everyone was right all week. Yeah. <laughs> Unless something pops up on Twitter in the next 45 minutes, there won't be a bad take segment. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the Leafs goaltending, but we're going to start by chatting about the Leafs uh, kind of newish forays into creating a matchup line on the third line mm-hmm. and this is originally going to be a discussion really about the the so-called hemline hyman engvall mikhaev um but in the last few games sheldon keith has has gone away from that to some degree uh, we've had different combinations of uh such as engvall mikhaev and kerfoot instead with um thornton being dropped from the matthews marner line and hyman kind of taking his his rightful place there more or less <laughs> um and Keith is using these lines really as, as matchup lines, and it, it, it they're kind of listed as third on the lineup sheet, but they're often out immediately after the Matthews line. So it's worth discussing, you know, what we think of the strategy, whether it's working, and what are some of maybe the uh, unintended consequences of having this. But first off, like uh, Fulman, I'll just kind of throw it to you for your thoughts. How do you think these lines broadly have performed over the past, you know, five, six, seven games? So the starting point is that I think that they've looked much better than I ever would have expected. Oh, and I wanted to say this was one of our topics that was suggested to us. And this mm-hmm. one is from uh, Jabio Cruz on Twitter. So, yeah, thank you very much for that. So I think this line has worked better than I thought it would. The one with Hyman, Engvall, and Mikhaev. And the basic thinking is, if you're going to play that line and then your top nine, who scores goals for it? It doesn't have enough offense that it seems like it can generate for itself because Engvall, God bless him, is not a very good offensive zone player. Ilya Mikhaev has an enormous penchant for taking high-quality shots and then not scoring on them. Also low-quality shots and not scoring on them. Yeah, he likes to shoot. That's probably a notable characteristic of his game. So, you start to wonder, can Zach Hyman, who is kind of a, an elite complementary offensive player, digs out pucks, wax and rebounds, but can he actually drive a line to any kind of offensive success? And in a shorter sample, that's worked much better than I thought it would. Yeah, so it, it's worth mentioning just how small the sample is here. For, mm-hmm. for the Hyman-Engvall-Mikheyev line, it's 71 minutes, which is not very much. No. Um, and it's primarily, uh, you know, 8 to 10 games, I'm trying uh, something like that. Like, it, it's... And the other thing you have to remember in this season, you know, eight to ten games is not over an eight to get ten game league wide sample. It's an eight to ten game sample over the same team most of the time, right? So like, I'm actually looking through the game log of 
this grouping right now, Engvall, Mikheyev, Hyman, um, and three of their, you know, eight to ten games are against the Oilers, right? Mm. Two of them are against the Canucks. One, one's against the Jets, one's against uh, the, the Habs, in terms of games where they spent, you know, kind of significant time together. So that's what, like, that's actually seven games. So it's even less than I thought. Right, so that's not a huge sample. It's not an especially diverse sample. Most of the teams in it aren't great, but and again, especially if you if you think, sorry to interrupt there, yep. um, but you know, half their about half their um, games played are against the Oilers, who have famously bad depth. True, and so there's a question of how they were used because they did see some time against Leandro Seidel. Yes, who is no joke, and. I think that I'm pretty impressed with them. I'm mostly impressed with Zach Hyman, who I think has shown more development in terms of his improvement as an offensive player in his own right in the last couple of years than you basically see. Like, we tend to assume that forwards are close to finished products by 24, 25, and Zach Hyman has actually kept getting better throughout his late 20s. And, you know, you can attribute that to he started his pro career later, he has a famously outstanding work ethic but whatever it is that line worked better than i thought it would yeah and to be honest to the point where i was a little surprised that sheldon keith went away from it this week Mm -hmm. because it checks a lot of boxes for what you want for a third line in terms of engvall and mikhaev are both big defensively stout guys everyone on that line is going to give you an a plus effort they'll be rangy they'll cover a lot of territory and they're all quick, determined skaters. So they can sort of run away for a rush chance, even if Ilya Mikhaev is not going to score on it 98% of the time. So really the question was their ability in the offensive zone, and that worked. That was working because Zach Hyman seemed, and I hate using this word because it's vague, but he seemed more dynamic than maybe we credited him with being. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, it's TBD how that works against defense cores that are not the Oilers or the Canucks. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he, he Hyman scored a quite brilliant goal where he just took the puck out of the corner himself, um, danced Garner McDavid and fired it. You know, top <laughs> corner. Um, it, it's it's a goal that would genuinely not look out of place on a Peter Forsberg highlight reel. Yeah, it was crazy. And yeah, it's like well, I did not realize Hyman had that in his locker. Right, like he he should do that more <laughs> if, he, if, he, if he if he can. Um, but yeah, it is still kind of very much an open question of how how, how will this work against better teams, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even how will this work against the same teams? We, we've seen so little of it. To my eye, it, it looks like a pretty reasonable, um, like a pretty reasonable line that kind of generates what it can off of really dogged puck retrieval. Um, mm-hmm. So I do question about you know how, how well it scales against better defensemen. Because I think that's the real big thing that the the North Division lacks, uh, and, and especially with other teams, is kind of quality puck movers on the back end. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is because we've watched Winnipeg the last two games, and Winnipeg and Vancouver, and you know Quinn Hughes aside uh, on Vancouver, it's a pretty poor defense core, and Winnipeg is a pretty poor defense core. And there's so many times where I just feel like they don't have good enough players to avoid four checks and get clean passes out. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, the, the hemline does a really good job capitalizing on those types of players because their puck retrieval is really, really good and they don't really have the, the skills to create chances against kind of 
set defenses, or at least not consistently. Not many players do. It's a difficult thing. So they do rely, really, for high-value chances on rush chances, off creating turnovers, off rebounds, and uh, their, their ability to, to get good position. It, so seeing how that works against better teams is something that only comes with time. But it seems that Keefe also went away from, from as you said, Keefe went away from this line, too, and ended up putting Hyman on the first line, with Joe Thornton coming down to the second, and Alex Kerfoot playing um, on this third line now. So this is, this is kind of an interesting line. Um, because it has kind of the Leafs' two natural third-line center candidates, internal third-line center candidates, um, on the same line, mm-hmm. right, in, in Engvall and in Kerfoot. And similarly, it's worked all right, I think. Yes. I think it's become clear that, you know, obviously we were saying earlier in the season, Pierre Engvall is clearly one of the 12 best forwards on this team, even if he's kind of annoyed Sheldon Geef at times. And his stock has only risen in recent weeks, as it's become clear that he's one of the better defensive forwards in the lineup. And so, I think the Kerfoot line that we saw earlier, you know, of Hyman, Kerfoot, Mikhaev, or other variations on it, um, I think we were missing some of that defensive solidity, and Engvall does provide some of that, some of that range. Um, something that's notable is that Engvall is not a good face-off man. And I genuinely believe that that's a factor in how this line gets constituted because Hyman and Mikhaev are also not really good face-off people. Kerfoot isn't the greatest at it, but he's good enough at it that it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just the increased capacity to have someone who takes draws. I wonder if that plays a role um, on that line. But in any event, it did seem to work, again, surprisingly well despite not having a clear offensive driver. Right. And I guess Engvall and, and Mikheyev have games that synergize together well. Mm-hmm. Neither is like a particularly good passer. As, you, as we said, neither is a really you know, cultured offensive player. They're, they're very straight line. They're very see puck, get puck, shoot puck. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're fast as hell and they're big and they're, they're annoying to play against. You know, Kevin Papetti pointed out that just like, they're really long. They have, you know, mm-hmm. if they're NBA players, we say they have huge wingspans. Yeah. Right? So there's, they're able to, like, disrupt pucks relatively well and all that. Um, so I think, we, you know, we're kind of positive on these lines to the extent that they haven't really been getting killed. And, and what this does provide is it puts Hyman in the top line and, you know, we don't need to wax poetic about that top line when, when everyone's firing. They didn't have a good game against, good game against Winnipeg, but um, generally speaking, Hyman, two stars, and when the two stars are, you know, two of the four best players in the division, uh, that's going to work fine. And then it puts Joe Thornton on the, the Tavares and Enander line, which has also been interesting and, and kind of fun, I think. Yeah, I think it's looked uh, pretty good to me. And I know TSN had some, some weird video hit yesterday being like, Concerns grow about Joe Thornton's place in the forward roster. That was the most clickbait video I've seen in my life. Come on, but why? Like, no, they don't. Um, Joe Thornton, I think, has been fine. He's had games that were quieter than some of his more active ones where he was tearing up the score sheet. But he's looked about as good as you could have hoped. Yeah. At the age that he's at. He's fit in perfectly fine on both the Matthews and Tavares lines. And... I don't think that there's a ton of concern about we need to 
bump Joe Thornton out. Now, if the Leafs do make an upgrade at wing, maybe that alters where he goes and he ends up spending some time back at center. I don't know. But it's not a bleeding need or anything like that. So, yeah. Uh, And this sort of ties into something that you were talking about, which is it's probably good for Joe Thornton to play fewer minutes. And that's likely once he's on the Devaro's line compared to the, the Matthews line. Very much so. Uh, we still see him on the Matthews line, like in, in you know fits and spurts, occasional mm-hmm. shifts there. Um, I I think, but I, I'm fine with Thornton on on the second line. I think it's looked fine. In, in a way, it goes quite well with with Tavares. Ne- neither of them are very fast at this point, but they have great ability to control the pace in the offensive zone. They're very smart players. Thornton can still basically hit every pass in the book, and a few that aren't. Uh, and this is one of the things that I think was underappreciated about Nylander to some extent, but because he's so complete as an offensive player, you don't have to worry so much about how he fits in with his line mates. He can do enough well offensively that his line mates can do whatever and Nylander will, he's like a putty, he'll fill the gaps, mm-hmm. right? You need him to be the zone entry guy, he can do that. You need him to be the trigger man, he, you, he can do that. You need him to be more of a passer with you know an elite sniper when he plays with Austin Matthews, he can do that. Right, so he he's very uh, flexible in a way that I think is is quite useful. Um, so I, I'm happy to see where this group goes further. Now, one thing worth mentioning, um, I alluded to this off the jump, but I didn't really say, I didn't really kind of go into detail on it. The, the third line is spending a lot of time against the uh, kind of second power line of the opposition. Right, yesterday, mm-hmm. Kerfoot, Engvall, and McKay have played uh, a lot of minutes against Connor, Dubois, and Nick Ehlers. Whereas um, the the Taveras line played more of their minutes against Cop, Lowry, and Mason Appleton, which you know it's kind of actually uh, there's some nice symmetry there in that Cop, uh, Lowry, and Appleton are one of those matchup third lines that plays above their station a bit, mm-hmm. um, and. We, I think we saw this against Vancouver as well. It's something that can be intuitively appealing, right? We've talked at length about the um, Coleman-Gord-Goodrow line, and we, we characterized uh, Hyman, uh, Mikheyev, Kerfoot as like a really pale imitation of that. Mm-hmm. And I think this, I, I, I wouldn't say on paper this isn't necessarily any better as an, as an interpretation of that, but it seems to be, again, what we're going for. And it's working slightly better than, than the original line did. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts on, I guess, how, they, how they've been used? Yeah, so it's, you know, completely acceptable to get any line that, that wins its minutes against those power lines and then to try to find another arrangement where you get an advantage elsewhere. But, and you were talking about this last night, if you have Matthews as a power versus power line that's going to play a ton... And you have a third line that you're matching against the second line. You're kind of letting the other coach dictate matchups. And you're letting them dictate that Tavares and Nylander aren't going to be out there as much. And it was striking last night because Tavares and Nylander looked to me like they were having uh, one of their best nights as a duo. Right. It was a game where the Tavares-Nylander duo had their A game and Matthews, Marner, and Hyman had like their C game. And, yeah. and when that happens, those two lines are, like, they flip it in effectiveness. Matthews, Marner, and Hyman are, are genu- generally a better line than 
you know, any other combination of players we can put out, frankly. Mm-hmm. But Tavares and Nylander are good enough that on their good games, they push them, right? It's, it's just like, it's similar to, to Malkin and Crosby in Pittsburgh. In, in, on the, in aggregate, the Crosby line is better, but on any given night, the Malkin line can fuck you up. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of two first lines, is that some nights one of them is going to have it going, and some nights when one of them is going and the other one isn't, that'll still be enough to win. Uh, obviously, that didn't happen last night, but... Yeah, it was a little bit weird that we didn't see more of Tavares and Nylander. And especially in light of the lingering injury that Austin Matthews seems to be dealing with. And that, you know, I know I have very mixed feelings about their decision to keep playing him. Uh, But in any event, it does seem weird that we would be leaning that hard on Austin Matthews when we know he's injured, when we know he's not having the greatest night, even though he's still an outstanding player who had a couple of great games earlier this week. But then that has knock-on effects where you're doing that, you're running your third line, that's sort of a matchup line, and then you're not playing William Nylander, who's the best player on the ice on the given night, and who was the game before, too. It's weird. And... As much as I appreciate what Keefe is trying to do there, sometimes you wonder if you overthink it and it's just play the good players who are having the best nights mm-hmm. and let, you know, let the rest of it work itself out. I do wonder if we got a little bit away from that last night. Yeah, it, it can be tricky. I mean, last night was, was kind of a particularly galling example in that I think Nylander was like, he had the least five-on-five time on ice of anyone besides the fourth line. Yeah, which is weird. It's one thing when you think Willie needs a bit of motivation. Mm-hmm. There was that, you know, third period benching that came up uh, a couple of weeks ago. But he's been flying out there lately. Keith has said as much. probably the least best forward over the past 10 games or so. Yeah, I genuinely believe that. He's been absolutely dazzling. And when he's having his best nights, he can be the best forward on the hockey team for a given evening even though we agree that he's probably the fourth best on average. It's not something that you want to neglect. It's the greatest strength of this team that it has four elite forwards and you want to take advantage of them. So, yeah, it. I think that that was maybe an underplayed plot line. It wasn't only me who was thinking about it. Katya pointed it out too. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it, it's something that is very striking in light of just how Keefe chooses to arrange his lines, and if the Leafs add an upgrade, does that affect again how he uses it, or does he keep going back to this Engvall line? I think the big thing that has been clear is that Pierre Engvall has pretty firmly established that he belongs out there. Yeah, he's played his way out of the doghouse. Yeah, and you know he's made that, that contract, which looked a little inflated, look a bit more in line with what he's worth. Right. And it's also, you know, I don't want to overstate the case here. It's not as if we're playing this, this third matchup line a whole lot more than the, the second line. or You know, by, by shared 5v5 time, mm-hmm. um, the, the second line that we would expect is still the second line. It's just not by a particularly large margin. And, of course, that doesn't include kind of partial shifts of, like, um, you know, McKayev and Engvall, but the fourth line coming out instead. Or, you know, one player on the fourth line next better or Boyd or something. Yeah, uh, that 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 can still happen. Um, we are playing the second line, the second most on average, but there's still a you know kind of notable gap between the first line and the second line that 
we pointed out at the beginning of the year, and that hasn't really changed a whole much. The first nine minutes have come down a little bit, but we're still heavily riding on them. Um, and it's it's not. This is something I mentioned. We did a piece at PPP, I don't know, maybe a week ago, about you know some coaching changes we'd like to see made. And you know, I'm pretty happy with the coaching decisions that have been made. But one thing I, I would like to see is pare down the first nine minutes and give them to the extent possible to uh, Tavares and Nylander. And, mm-hmm. you know, the caveat here is, yes, that does make us a short, a worse team in the short term, right? right? Because we are not playing our better players as much. But if you believe that um, kind of rest and load management, uh, although I hate that term, uh, <laughs> is, is a useful endeavor, then... It seems like it, it would be it would be logical to at least try this, um, especially with as you said, as Matthew, with Matthews hurt. We, we talked about this last week, I guess, and I don't think either of us um, either of us feel that the that pl- the Leafs are going to play Matthews to his detriment, right? If if they think it'll it could cause problems long term, but. It's still, you know, additional time where he can get injured, re-aggravate things. You you do have to strike a balance, and the Leafs are one of the few teams with the luxury of two other first-line quality players. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem like a bit of a weird choice on, on that end. And I know that they keep saying they believe that this is the kind of injury that can heal while he continues to play. I find that a little surprising, but, you know, I obviously don't have the medical background to say that they're wrong. It just worries me considerably that the player who's obviously the most important to the future of this franchise, um, both in the medium and long terms, you know, we need him 100% in April to make a run. We need him as good as he can be in the coming years to be a contending franchise. And so if it isn't, 100% or if there is any risk that it's going to be uh, getting worse under the strain of continuing to play you'd really think that they ought to take that seriously and it jives especially weirdly with just giving him massive ice every single night even though obviously he's capable of doing things with it as we saw this week where despite clearly seeming to look off his own shot at times he was still a dominant player uh, an elite first-line player. And so I do worry a little bit about the temptation there because he is playing so well and is still so effective, even kind of limited, that maybe the Leafs are a little bit incentivized to keep playing him, uh, even if it's not to his detriment, as we were saying, but just like to the point where maybe it's not the best course long-term. Yeah, and, and this is inherently a situation where we don't, have the information needed to make that call. Only the Leafs mm-hmm. do, and only Matthews does, really, because only Matthews really knows how he feels. Right. And Matthews would not be the first, and he certainly wouldn't be the last hockey player to say, nah, I'm good, when, you know, he would maybe be better served by saying, maybe I, I should give this some time, right? Players mm-hmm. are um, not the right people to ask about this, or not the right pe- not not often people who see the long-term in these situations. Right. Especially 23-year-old athletes who often feel invincible. Mm-hmm. And because who are going to seriously contend and probably be favored for the Rocket Richard the way yeah. that they're going. 
you know? <laughs> well, yeah, and like Matthews, Matthews is like keenly aware, I think, of of legacy. He's a, he's a big NBA fan, mm. right? I think he's very aware of what it means for him personally to have to to kind of stake his claim as, hey, I I'm one of the best in the league, um, by by winning a rocket or something like that, and you know that that's not unreasonable right that that's part of the drive that that makes him great mm-hmm. it, it's up to it's up to the Leafs to kind of be the people who look out for for the long term and again we don't know that they that they're not doing that but you know, we it's 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 something that deserves mentioning regardless. Like we we can't really say either way. Okay, you know, the Leafs are messing this up, or no, it's completely fine. But yeah, there there is obviously whenever there's an injury that someone's playing through, there's the potential for essentially moral hazard. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is striking because you can see how it impacts Matthew's game mm-hmm. because the shot is so prominent, and when he decides not to take it, um, seemingly out of deference to his wrist not being up to it. It's concerning. It's it is. Yeah, very, in yesterday's game, yeah. I noticed him like load up for, for the shot a couple times. It, it, I think in the occasions he did, he did. It, he either fanned on it or got blocked or something, so it was never even recorded. It's like a shot, but it was notable that he was actually putting the trigger on on his kind of his wrister. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe maybe it is feeling better, uh, and, and he feels more confident in it. But yeah, like like we, like we said, it, it's impossible for us to know from where we are, and all we can do is really hope that the Leafs are being prudent here with you know their best player their ticket to any success that they're going to have over the next five years yeah absolutely and you know someone who was probably making fun of us for being pessimistic worry warts would say hey you started a segment that was fundamentally based around the Leafs seem to have three effective forward lines now and you turned it into injury worry but um yeah I do think that that kind of hangs over some of what we're doing and is one of the more pressing concerns with the Leafs right now, even though we can't know a lot about it and kind of just have to defer to the organization. Yes. Um, so I guess to wrap up on, on this third line, I think we're both kind of positive on it. it mm. It's good to see. Um, it's not a line, like any of the Engvall, Mikheyev, other person, uh, line, whether it's Hyman or, or Kerfoot, it's something I would have necessarily expected to be as successful as it has shown in the short time that it's been played but it's been good enough that i am okay um like it's it's worth continuing to explore and i i don't mind them being used to play um to play matchups you know that of strong top six lines i -hmm. think that that's reasonable um and again you know they're not exclusively playing against these lines we're not completely you know shunning the the tavera's line to to get you know, to match up Ilya Mikheyev to Leon Dreisaitl. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, but, yeah, it, it's it's something that is uh, kind of an interesting development that is worth continuing to look at. Insofar as it does result in us not playing, you know, our third and fourth best players maybe as much as we should, I think that can be rectified to some extent by taking those minutes away from Matthews and Marner, who are being leaned on really, really heavily. Yeah. Uh, exceptionally so and so yeah i i think that it's certainly encouraging that we found a good and frankly cheap third line that looks like something that we can probably sustain a little bit and certainly i'm fine seeing more of it it's just a matter of 
now that we have these three lines that seem to be going pretty well, notwithstanding how rough some of the last few games have looked, I don't think the issue was mostly forward lines. We just want to see, are we getting the best arrangement out of this? Or are we kind of maximizing what these, these lines can do? Right. So, and, and also, yeah. you know, it's very diff- It's very easy to kind of stand back and say, oh, you know, you look at the time on ice at the end of the game, like, oh, X player should have played more, Y player should have played less. Um, in, in the flow of things, it can often appear different. There can be equipment issues. There can be TV timeouts that let you give uh, a guy, you know, what looks like a basically a three-minute shift, but they maybe have had two and a half minutes in between then to rest, right? There, there are other factors that, uh, that come into play here, so we don't want to mm-hmm. be, you know, overly reductive or overly simplistic, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's just about finding finding that balance, and I, I, I want Keith to trust the Tavares and Elander line more, because at this point, they have, you know, put up 10, 15 games of really, really solid performance. Yeah, they're really rolling right now. In fact, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we, we can say that they've been beating up on bad teams, but they, they you know, last 10 games or so, um, they have given up one goal against, you know, they, they've scored like three or four they kind of dominated the shot clock against whoever they played against. They're still NHL players and still decent ones too because, you know, they're, they're facing guys like Dreisaitl at times. They're facing guys like Brock Besser. They're facing guys like Nick Eaters. Yeah. And just a menace, by the way. Yeah, he was uh, terrifying. That whole series is a rush monster. But, yeah, I just want to point out, also beating up on bad teams, not a given. Not something yeah. that everyone does all the time, even when they should. And given how often we run into teams that we describe as not being the greatest... Still very useful. So, yes. yeah. yeah. And I mean, God, I hope we I hope we follow through on that now that we've said it and, and beat up on Ottawa tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We were debating uh, leaving this podcast to go later on, but we figured, okay, that's going to be too late. But um, yeah, after we've lauded the top nine to the stars a little bit, it's going to be weird if we lose 5-2 to the frickin' Senators. Mm. So, look forward to that, uh, you who are listening in the future. Um, yeah, so we were going to move on to another topic that I think is, uh, very much a hot button topic in Leafland, really forever, but also <laughs> especially right now. It was suggested by Brock Amiklo when we solicited podcast topic suggestions, and it has only become more apt in the days since. And it's the goaltending question. Yes, and nothing spurs goaltending questions like, um, getting goal lead in a couple games. <laughs> yeah. Which is what happened to the Leafs uh, this week, where, uh, well, a, a few times, I guess. Uh, the Vancouver games were, were last week. The Leafs lost both of those. Um, the first one, I think, Thatcher Demko kind of stole. The second one, my memory's fuzzy of that game, but I remember it being, like, relatively closer, and it wasn't, I wouldn't have called it a goalieing. I think um, Demko made the difference. Let's in both games? Way. In terms of uh, his performance relative to, Fr- to Frederick Anderson, like, this is very simplistic, but it's the old, if you flip the goalies, who wins? Right. I think the Leafs win both of those games against Vancouver. Yeah, Five. fair enough. My, my memory of the of the March 6th game against Vancouver is, is fuzzy, and I'm looking just at the stats now. The Leafs did appear to control the shot clock in that, so um, maybe not to an overwhelming degree like they did before, but it's, it's still... Um, Still probably a game where, yeah, as, as you said, if you flip the goaltenders, the Leafs win. Uh, the, the games against the Jets were kind of the first two games were, were <laughs> really, really, really strong performances from Connor Hellebuck. Yeah, I have to say, and I'll add in fairness, last night the Jets looked like the better team. Oh. The, top to bottom. Yeah, last night, 
the Jets were the better team, I thought. Um, yeah, and yeah, in in stats, in eye test, in all of it. Um, but the first two, they also looked abject by stats, and they earned it, in my opinion. They looked yeah, really they, rough. They were really bad. Um, oh, I do, I do have a bad take that we can get to. Oh, <laughs> all right, um, great. I like what we and, found and out. Be, it it, it is about the Jets. So, anyways, um, but yeah, yeah. the the, fir- the first uh, the first two games. The Leafs were kind of dumbing the Jets, and you look at this three-game series on the whole, and you'd say the Leafs were probably, you know, the better team bar goaltending in in two of those games, and um, Hellebuck stole one of them, right? Mm-hmm. So th- this was probably a two-one series in the uh, in 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 the Leafs' direction, and Hellebuck made it a two-one series in the Jets' direction. And you know, I, I don't want to fall into the trap where we say that like when Austin Matthews scores a forty-five foot wrister, it's because he's a great shooter. When Nick Eater scores a forty-five foot wrister, it's because Anderson's a bad goalie. Yeah, there's been a lot of that going around lately. Just independent of any goalie criticism. It does have to be said, the Jets feast on rush chances because mm-hmm. they're in a position to get a lot of them because they get hemmed in their own zone a lot. And they have a couple of players who are exceptionally good at capitalizing on them. Yep. They're, e- yeah. They Eaters, Connor, Shifley. They're, they're all, you know, Shifley's a great passer. Eaters and Connor are, are very, very good shooters. Yeah, Ehlers especially, I mean, he kind of torched us in the course of this series, but he's, uh, there's a Jets reporter I follow, Garrett Hole, who's uh, a bit of a stats person, and uh, what am I saying a bit? He's like a real stats person anyway, but he's he's said, half-jokingly, Nick Ehlers might be the best winger in the Canadian division, and we understandably get our backs up at that, but also Ehlers is really, really, really good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, anyway, we saw that. As we were saying, though, I think the Leafs definitively outplayed the Jets two games out of three, which is about as much as I can expect them to do. And I do think goaltending was a concern in in the course of those showings. It was exacerbated by the fact that the guy at the other end was playing so well. Well, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to bring up, because I don't think Mm -hmm. Anderson was necessarily bad. Um, it's, It's that he paled in comparison to Hellebuck. Yeah. And, and I think that that's definitive. I also think Connor Hellebuck is probably the best goalie in the world right now. Right. Like, it's Imber Vasilevsky. But, yeah, I do think that it was kind of more striking. And it's also more striking because of, if you're on Leafs Twitter, and as I say every time, avoid it if you can, there's a real bitterness in the discussions about Freddie Anderson at this point. Like, I, I would see things where, you know, there's a double deflection, and of course you, Anderson probably isn't going to save that unless it's by chance. And, you know, people were saying, oh, another goal that Freddie Anderson just had no chance on. It's like, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> Which isn't to say that he played well in the aggregate, though. Yeah. Because I don't think that he did. Uh, I, so I'll, I'll, I guess, yeah. push back on this a little bit. Okay. I, th- I think he, he was fine. And, I mean, it, it's... It's tricky. You, there, there's, there's a lot of... It's very difficult to evaluate goalies in general, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you need to be really... It's so different from the rest of hockey. You need to be really kind of a subject matter expert to, to critically analyze goalies besides kind of scouting the stat line. And, you know, to the extent that we do goalie analysis, it's really just of the variety of, hey, that guy lets in a lot of goals. Yeah, or, that guy does not let in a lot of goals. Like it, it's simplistic, and that's because we're not subject matter experts on on goaltending. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a result, like when you when you start breaking down tape of, of goaltenders, 
and you don't really know what you're looking for. What it comes down to is like you say, okay, is that a good goal or a bad goal? And you know, sometimes it, it, it's similar to evaluating evaluating skater defense. It, it's very hard to see the absence of something, right? It's mm-hmm. very hard to see the absence of, oh, that was a tough shot because he could have been better positioned or he could have moved laterally more. You need to actually know shit to do that, to say that. Um, when it comes to Anderson, the numbers are not great this year and the numbers were not good last year. Mm-hmm. So there, there's, there's a reason to criticize based on those. If you dig a bit deeper into the numbers, and Kevin Papetti had a, had a good article about this at Maple Leafs Hot Stove, um, what, what it has come down to is Anderson has... His poor performance has primarily been on penalty kills, mm-hmm. and and less so at five v five. It's been at penalty kills and other kind of quote unquote weird score states, like you know, uh, three on three or four on three, right, or or um, things like that. Mm-hmm. And when you analyze those goals that he's given up, you can make a case that it's um, just not just kind of bad bounces, but a lot of the. Um, a lot of the underperformance, so to speak, has been the result of some variance with respect to the high quality chances that are uh, achieved at that score state. And that can exacerbate things and, and make things look worse for Anderson on the stat line than maybe they are in real life. Yes. And at the risk of joining a little bit into eye test territory here, I'm probably going to spend some decent time in that jurisdiction in this segment. I don't think Freddie Anderson has given up too many howlers lately, where it was just a no doubt about it, absolute garbage showing from him. I'm not saying there have been zero, but I'm saying that the concern is on the part of a lot of people. There are a lot of good chances against, and some of them are very good chances against or deflections that I really do not think that you can seriously hold against him. It's just then you get to the end of the night some nights and he's allowed four goals on 25 shots or something like that. And you find yourself saying, at some point in there, I need to save. And I do have some sympathy for the angle saying, look, you're paid to make difficult saves a certain percentage of the time. Now, the sample over which that has to happen is larger than one game where anything can sort of take place. But I think it's fair to say that over the last year and a half, really the last 15 months or so, it hasn't quite been there for Freddie at the the highest level of starting goalie. And I think that that's kind of an issue for it. I also think people are just mad at Freddie Anderson because he's been in a lot of elimination games that the Leafs lost. Mm-hmm. So. That stays with you as well. Right. And, and we also have to acknowledge that, like, to, to the point that Kevin brought up of, you know, you look at the score states where he's given up goals and you can say, okay, you know, some of these are, are kind of fluky. Well, you also have to look at the other direction say, okay, well, his good 5v5 performance are some of the saves he's making fluky, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't work just one way. Right. Um, and, and all in all, I guess, I, I think you can make a credible argument that Anderson has been about average, which is better than his numbers suggest, I don't think you can really say he's been anything above that. No. And there have been some great goaltending performances, as we've said, down at the other end. And I think people look at Connor Hellebuck or Thatcher Demko with envy because they say, we have such a good team here. We're paying so much money. Well, so much. We're paying a certain amount of money for Frederick Anderson's goaltending, and we're not getting really high-end starters 
goaltending and we're worried, is this what brings us down again? Because we all know that bad goaltending can sewer a team. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a lot of fear around that. Um, there was actually something that I wanted to mention. Um, it, it's from Jake Beliefs, who I'm mutuals with on Twitter. Jake has played goalie at a much higher level than I ever did. And so I'm going to trust that he does know some of what he's talking about. He's been looking at some of the goals against uh, for Freddie. But he's ta- mentioned uh, in some of his tweets, he thinks that the, the timing of goaltending matters. Like when you give up a goal at a crucial moment, that seems to affect the momentum of the game. Does that have an impact? And it's easy psychologically to imagine why that could be the case. If right. the team feels demoralized that it's it's now in a deeper hole just when it, it seemed to be getting some momentum, things like that. It's plausible. I don't know if you can prove that there are goalies that just continually come up big in big moments in a way that holds up kind of robustly or not. And it's very hard to say. That's basically what I was exactly going to say, where yeah. I, 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 I very much buy that momentum and timing of saves um, makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. It, it makes a difference with, with goals who different saves affect win probability differently. Right. It's unclear, as you said, whether uh, there are goalies who out or underperform their average ability in high leverage moments. And that that's hard to measure because hockey is, um, you know, hockey's well, a difficult sport to measure in, in general, but also because uh, you're necessarily looking at a subset of what can often be a, a small sample generally. Like a season isn't enough to get a good sense of a goaltender's quote-unquote, true level of performance generally. Now we're going to split that up into, like, important saves. And the other thing is that anytime you do a momentum-based analysis as a fan, or just try to, you know, pin down when did it seem like the air went out of the balloon on the team, that's super subjective, but also that's going to reflect your own feelings about the game. Yeah. It, and it, I, it, yeah. It's, as Katya says, post-hoc ergo propter hockey. <laughs> it gets me every time. But yeah, it's true. And that's... I want to be clear that that's not the same as me saying that I don't think that this is possibly real or possibly matters. It's just that <laughs> it's hard for me to see how we prove when it's happening or when a guy is just not a big moment goalie. And I know that people say, well, we've had proof that Frederick Anderson is not a big moment goalie because we can remember big moments where he has allowed goals. And again, it's one of those things where people don't really remember necessarily what happened so much as how they felt about it. It's not to say that they're necessarily wrong, but the critical goal against in a game seven against Boston is the one that stays with you for two years later. Most goals against do not have that long a mental lifespan. Right. And and we've seen with other goalies that they've been, you know, not a big game goalie, you know, a goalie who doesn't preserve momentum. And then suddenly that changes. Marc-Andre Fleury's the obvious example, had a, some horrible series in Pittsburgh in the early 2010s and then leads Vegas to a, a cup final. Yeah. And conversely, his old partner, who was a big game goalie until he turned into a bad goalie, Matt Murray, um, you know, came into the league like gangbusters with two high-end playoff runs. And then it kind of just went. So... It can be very difficult to separate out how we're feeling about this with how it's going. And I want to strike a balance there where I'm not saying that things like momentum, the things like the the timing when you have to dig out another goal, I'm not saying that doesn't matter. 
Because I can certainly believe that it does. And in some ways, as you've said, with win probability, it clearly does. It's just, I'm not sure that Freddie Anderson is necessarily going to be worse than your typical starting goalie at that. Maybe you say you think that he's less likely to make that heroic save when you really, really need him to because you think he's kind of prone to getting beat by quality chances. But I don't know. It's very hard to establish. I think it is fair to say this year he hasn't been as good as I I would like him to be or I think that he has been in the past. But I know that that's, you know, we've kind of gone back and forth on that even because it's not quite as dire as raw save percentage looks right now this leads into kind of what we were going to talk about more broadly which is the Leafs big decision to make with respect to goaltending um Mm. Anderson's contract is up after this year he will be a UFA he's currently making five million dollars he will be 32 by the time his next contract takes effect right um you know if, if you've listened to this pod for long enough you, you can probably guess where we're going with this, right? It's often a bad idea to commit to goaltenders in their early 30s because goaltenders in their early 30s can get worse a lot quicker. And there's, in general, a lot more variability with goaltenders even when they're in their prime with mm-hmm. what you're getting year to year. Now, in fact, the last two years might be the start of a decline from, from Anderson, right? It's possible we look back on his career and say, oh, yeah, you know, he started his save percentages and his uh, goal saved above expected started dipping in his uh, age 30 and 31 years and then that continued until he was no longer in the league at 35 mm-hmm. and you know you don't you certainly don't want to be the team holding the bag if that's the case from ages 32 to 35 plus yes this is something that i actually want to talk about uh briefly just as we preface this decision because the decision ultimately is what do you do with the goalies um I think with forwards and things like that, sometimes we're conscious of an overpay, an unrestricted free agency. Like we talked about with John Tavares, for example, but you say, okay, I'm paying a premium here, but I know kind of what I'm getting here and I'm okay paying a little more for that. And the difficulty with goalies is a lot of times you can't overpay to guarantee something because you can so rarely buy any certainty in that market at all. Because goaltending performance, especially when players move teams, when goaltenders move teams, is so variable that you can end up overpaying for a guy who looks like he ought to be a solid starter by rights, and then he's just not. He doesn't deliver for you. Um, For whatever reason, he's not able to. And so I'm kind of hesitant to spend money on goalies at all beyond a certain point, because I literally don't think that you can buy quality. I'm not saying that, you know, you're going to overpay for quality. I'm saying you literally can't consistently judge when you're going to get good goaltending, unless for some reason you have prime Henrik Lundqvist or prime Roberto Luongo on the market, and that doesn't happen. So, yeah, it's it's yeah. really, really tricky. And maybe NHL teams have better tools than we do to evaluate uh, God, I, hope so. <laughs> I mean, if the Matt Murray contract... But the evidence any, is not that they do. Yeah. yeah, the Matt Murray contract, Jordan Binnington just got a $6 million deal. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's tricky. I, I certainly hope the Leafs have, you know, some newfangled method that, you know, uh, you know, agents hate this. It's one weird trick to find great goaltenders. Mm. Um, 
if they do, oh, that's amazing. Please, let's use that. But there's one thing I want to prepare for. There is no, there's basically no reasonable action the Leafs can take that will completely assuage any fears that you may have about goaltending going forward. It is very hard to buy certainty there. It's, it's as you said, near impossible. And, I mean, when we made the Anderson deal, a lot of us were like, oh, man, that's, okay, I, I hope that works. And it, it, it did, generally mm-hmm. speaking. Right? That, that, that's kind of the type of thing you have to hope happens again, where if you, if you pick a guy, you know, you, you, you find your guy in another team, you trade for them, and pr- maybe extend them, maybe they have a contract, whatever. But you commit to a guy from who you acquire in trade, and you, you kind of have to hope, okay, I really hope our pro scouting was right on this. Yes, absolutely. And it makes it kind of a fraught decision. So I think maybe it's worth starting by, we're talking about the upcoming decision in the offseason, because I don't think I see a way for the Leafs to make a big trade now in goal. No, I, it, would, it would be pretty nuts. I mean, we don't have the cap room to do it. Unless they, they want to trade Anderson midseason, which would be bold. Extremely bold. And so, yeah, I mean, you're basically doing that to clear the cap necessary to acquire whoever it is you're taking on. Yeah, say And then Ronto. presumably you're paying for the upgrade. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's an obvious viable candidate. I mean, you can look at, say, uh, the New York Rangers and say, okay, that team is basically out. Um, I don't know if they're going to admit it just yet, but they're probably not going to make the playoffs. Um, They have Alexander Georgiev, who is signed for a couple of years for cheap, who has had a a brutal year (laughs) so far, but like, let's say maybe you buy... Uh, your pro scouting that likes him or his track record. Um, even then, y- you know, you're paying real assets for this and it's just such a gamble. And maybe you're okay with it. Maybe you're just saying, I'm tired of Freddie Anderson and I don't trust him and I don't want to do this anymore. And I think that's where a lot of people are at. But I also think you have to acknowledge somewhat that whoever you're getting, someone else may be tired of their untimely saves too <laughs> right yeah so, so yeah so yeah. Uh, as you said this is probably not happening this season it's, it's an off-season move and yeah. uh let's just quickly set the table for what the leafs have in their roster for next season goaltending wise in terms of people that'll matter it's jack campbell who has another year at like i don't know 1.6 million something like that yeah 1.65 um, yeah and yep. then there's an empty space yeah so, well michael hutchinson but uh, yeah if if the leafs plan on michael hutchinson you know being an important part of their team next year i'm going to become a seattle kraken fan yeah um we're done podcast closed we're going to be back to sea monster now. yes and, and the, you know to be 100 percent clear and obvious there is a zero percent chance kyle Dewis does that no <laughs> for all the criticisms you can levy at him um he's not an idiot yeah so so then the question becomes okay well what what are the options for the leafs this offseason um you look at the free agent market and there's there's few people there who you would really be happy um, spending uh, spending a lot of resources on, and that's kind of by design. The goalies who are good often get locked up, you know, through extensions before they hit the market. Um, so, and of course, in the general NHL free agent market, means the goalies who are UFAs tend to be older, mm-hmm. right? So you know when you look at the the people kind of on. Who are UFAs? I think I think Auntie Ranta may be the, the, the best one. 
um, to stick in Arizona, Darcy Kemper. I think he's a UFA. I'll just check that real quick. Oh, no, he, sorry, he has an additional year. Um, maybe he's a, a trade target instead. But, you know, Ronta's like 31. Kemper is 30. Um, it, acquiring them is not necessarily a bad idea, but it, it kicks the can down the road one or two years. In the Leafs' prospect system, there are essentially zero goalies who we can reasonably expect to be in the NHL. Yeah, and that's despite a trade on Friday that we haven't really discussed because it doesn't have a ton of NHL significance, which was the Leafs flipping Miko Lettinen to Columbus for uh, Vinny. Okay. I apologize. This is me trying my best to pronounce his name. I am sure I'm going to do it wrong, but I'm going to get better. I promise. But just for the purposes of this episode, bear with me. Vinny Vevelainen. I am sorry to the entire nation of Finland. So we acquired him on Friday. And yet he's, he looks like a third goalie at most right now. Has had great showings in, in the Finnish Liga and not so hot in the AHL. Almost no NHL experience. He played one, like 10 minutes. And he, got, and he got shelled in that 10 minutes, I think. It was one goal and four shots. Okay, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And so, yeah, that's the kind of move that you make longer term. But I think we're really seeing the Leafs are having the consequences now of not having drafted goalies uh, really well, for one thing, or almost at all. Like between 2009 and 2015... That's seven drafts. The Leafs drafted two goalies, and they got Garrett Sparks and Antoine Bibeau, who are AHL-caliber starters. Bibeau, maybe not even that. So, as a result now, we're down the road, and we don't have goalies in the pipeline. We have Joseph Wall, who we're hoping can be something someday, but it's they should be very cautious hopes at this point. And we're trading for other teams' spare parts. Yeah, Ian Scott had, like, a lost year, more or less, due to, like, injury, I believe. I haven't followed his yeah, that Yeah, I know it was, and it's, um, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if you're getting a year wiped out at age 21... Um, it's rough. Yeah, you, realistically, the Leafs can't expect anything from him. No. So. So, the, the obvious answer is, okay, let's see what's on the free agent market, and... Again, there's two options here. You can you can try and find the stock gap, maybe a, a, a 1A or 1B to pair with Jack Campbell, who has been good in his time in Toronto. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Campbell is also, I believe, 29 already. Yes, he is. Um, he, he's, he's not particularly young. He was drafted in, like, 2011. He spent a young in terms of his NHL career because he was behind Jonathan Quick for a very long time. Um, but he hasn't really demonstrated much, nor, nor had the opportunity to, and he might be exiting his physical prime very soon. Right, so it might just be one of those guys who maybe had NHL starter level ability, but never got the opportunity to show it while his body was in its peak. We'll see. Um, so, yeah, there, you you can try and find kind of a platoon guy. Maybe you bring back James Reimer. You you look at Jonathan Bernier. Uh, you look at I don't know Anders Nielsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, naming random guys. Maybe you you yeah you bring those in. You try and cheap out on goaltending to to an extent. If you if you buy that, you can't really buy goaltending. Mm-hmm. Uh, try and go cheap, use the money to maybe keep Zach Hyman or maybe fi- maybe find an upgrade somewhere else, right? It's a flat cap world. You have to make trade-offs. Um, right. It is risky. It's justifiable, but, you know, there's a reasonable chance that blows up in your face. Yeah, and, you know, Carolina has operated on this principle for a long time, buying lots of mid-range guys, not making lots of term commitments that they couldn't manage. So right now they have James Ryman, Peter Mrazek. 
Reimer makes 3.4, Mrazek makes 3.125, and they've cobbled together adequate goaltending out of the two of them. And I think, from where I'm coming from, kind of rationally, that's what makes sense to me as to probably what you should do, even though it's kind of a nervy thing. But, like, that's the logical outcome of you can't buy much certainty in the goalie market, get a guy who can probably be good, get two guys who can probably be good, and then hopefully you can ride one of them. Um, you know, just another throwaway example is Chicago looked like they were going to be awful this year, and as a team, they still are pretty bad. But they also spent no money on goaltending, and we were like, okay, that's going to doom them. And then their third goaltender, who was a career not that great, AHLer, has come up and been hot like gangbusters. And as a result, Chicago has surged. Yeah, Kev- Kevin Lankinen. Yeah. Um, one of the, I don't, I, I don't know a lot about Finnish names, but that does not sound like an overly Finnish name, but he is indeed Finnish. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it belongs to the Eric Halla group of Finnish players who have, have very, you know, North American names. The inverse of that is Anders Lee being American. Yeah, and nev- the, yeah. The, the biggest one is Anders Bjork, who is, like, from Wisconsin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it- <laughs> the mind. Uh, yeah, so you put all this together, and it's sort of... Can you get someone who is going to be your secure, no doubt about it, starter for years to come? And the Freddie Anderson trade did do that for us for three or four years. Mm-hmm. Or do you just want to keep kind of spinning the wheel? Like, I would have no problem with bringing back Jonathan Bernier on a one-year. But I am risking, you know, one of these years he's not going to be any good anymore. I, I He's not, you know, elite caliber. I'm resigning myself to I won't be able to get that. Uh, so I, I think the two ru- routes that you can go are either cheap out, spend the money elsewhere, hope for the best. Or if you see a guy who you think is blocked somewhere yeah find the new freddie anderson basically exactly and maybe you even do it in advance of the expansion draft where a team is thinking okay we can't protect both goalies maybe we should get an asset for this player from toronto rather than uh just let him be exposed in the expansion draft i don't know right i I mean in that case the leafs are exposing jack campbell by the way but yeah so i mean jake ottinger in dallas might be one kind of blocked by anton hudobin and ben bishop um Spencer Knight in Florida is—it's a weird case where they have Bobrovsky. Like it's that seemed like a uh, a draft room and a uh, front office and like a free agency room that was just not talking when they signed Bobrovsky, but also picked Spencer Knight. Um, yeah, it's been very weird because Bobrovsky was signed to that enormous deal, has been somewhat better this year, but still not great. He's still getting outperformed by Chris Drieger, is he not? Yes, he is. Uh, and so, yeah, who came out of nowhere? And just went on a solid run. Dreger, solid... sorry, I should say. Dreger, yeah. And so Florida has searched behind his goaltending for this guy who was not even really in the calculus for a lot of people beyond is like a stopgap. Um, and so do you do you pursue Dreger in free agency? Or if the, the Panthers are finally giving up on their ability to manage both Spencer Knight and Sergei Bobrovsky, do they make Knight available? Up till now, they've said to everyone... We're not trading him, which is exactly what you say, both if you aren't trading him or if you want to drive up the price on him. Right. It's, it seems, I mean, Bobrovsky's there for like another six millennia, more or less. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, He's there till the year 3000. So 
And, and it is a bit of a weird situation. It is. And also, I mean, look, the only thing worse than than um, getting your season, of, the season of a, content, of a would-be contending team uprooted because, you know, your goaltenders making a combined three million just aren't very good. The only thing worse than that is is when that happens to goaltenders making a combined ten million. Yeah, which is <laughs> what happens to, you know, for example, uh, Montreal and uh, and Florida, you know, in, in in the aggregate, right? Like they're they're spending a lot of money on goaltending that overall is is not really uh, distinguishing them from other teams. Now Florida has still been pretty good otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. And this is with playing absolute fucking randos on on in their in their lineup i mean mason marchman is is playing like significant minutes there uh, carter verhage who you know maybe verhage is just actually genuinely good i had you know i think verhage might be for real yeah, yeah. I, he was a leafs prospect played for the ice dogs i believe in niagara um i i wasn't like i didn't know much about him i just kind of assumed he was a guy he, we traded him in, in the grabner trade with a bunch of other mm-hmm. guys and none of those other guys ever became nhl guys but Verhage has been very good in the NHL when he's got there. Yeah, so he was he was at the time considered the best of the five players we were giving up. But even then, we were sort of like whatever. And that deal was as much as anything to clear SPC space for Lou Lamorello. And I know that everyone's like, "Thanks, Lou, giving up on another good player." But for a while after, Verhage didn't show that much. Like he was down to the ECHL at different points in the next couple of seasons after we traded him. And yet he established himself as a very good AHL scorer for the Syracuse crunch. Uh, the Tampa's affiliate uh, had an okay depth season for Tampa. And then this year, suddenly he's on their top line. Yeah. One of the few true ECHL to AHL success or sorry, to NHL success stories. Yeah. Him and Justin Hall. So, <laughs> and I guess Alex Burroughs, but yeah, Fuck so that's a weird season that's going on in Florida. But bringing it back around to the goaltending situation, guys like Bobrovsky and Price are the extreme examples of you can't buy goaltending because they were both coming off multiple seasons of being very, very high-end goaltenders, you know, among the best in the world. And their contracts are two of the worst in the NHL, maybe the two worst. And a bad goalie contract is a lot worse than the equivalent bad skater contract. You can bury Milan Lucic on your fourth line. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can't do that with Bobrovsky. Uh, yeah, all you can do is make him a backup or an awkward platoon. And there is going to be so much pressure for you to throw him into the starting job at every opportunity. Um, and so, you know, you have situations where, like, if uh, Carey Price and Jake Allen were both signed to like one-year deals, Jake Allen would have the starting job in Montreal by now, I think. So all of these are kind of clouding factors of what do you do with Freddie Anderson? And you'll notice we've never made much noise about extending him, either of us, because I don't think either of us wants his next deal. No. uh, Now, I mean, if his price has dropped way more, then I expect that it will, and he becomes in that range of platoon guys who aren't commanding serious salaries, then maybe you cycle back on that. But I think probably someone plays him starter-ish rates, and that involves giving him term into his mid-30s, and I don't want to pay that. So Yeah, it's also... 
you can see a team being like, I think Anderson's really good. That defense hangs him out to dry. Um, yeah. What, what, you know, thinking about the Leafs prior to the season as opposed to the season where their defense has been about league average. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it, I feel like it's hard for any player who plays in Toronto to fly under the radar and to get like a really kind of below market value deal, mm-hmm. especially someone who's been as notable as Anderson. So I, right. I don't, I really don't expect, um, I don't expect his next contract to be amazing for the team that signs it. Yeah, I don't think so. And again, because he's a UFA and he's rel- relatively well known, it's probably going to be a winner's curse situation as much as anything. Like, it's not that everyone has to believe that he's still a good starting goalie. It's that one GM has to believe it and act on it. Yeah. And so, that's the deal that you have to outbid, so. Exactly. One other option is just to try and sign an old guy to, like, a one-year. You know, mm-hmm. Yaroslav Halak is still somehow effective at 36. Yaroslav um, Halak is the weirdest goalie, man. Like, <laughs> I can't think of a goalie who's better than him who is never really a starting goalie ever. Yeah. But has hung around for like 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe you try and replicate that and say, that, okay, you know, maybe for whatever reason, Halak's one of those guys who's better with without a full starter's workload. So you say, okay, you know, we'll have a 1A, 1B situation with Halak and, say, Campbell. Um, I, don't, I don't know if Boston wants to keep Halak. They have both Rask and Halak coming up this year. Mm-hmm. Both are, you know, Rask is 34, I think, right now. So they're, 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 you know, neither are spring chickens. I, I guess we'll see what happens there. I mean, if you get really desperate, there, there's Mike Smith. No. No matter how desperate you get, there is not Mike Smith. Mm-hmm. I refuse to accept that. But, um, Yeah, yeah no, and, and, and then, like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you can convince one of those teams with one of those uh, 25-year-old RFA goalies to... Give, trade them your rights if they're sour on them for whatever reason, but I don't know that to be the case. And, and here I'm talking about like Ilya Sorokin, um, Igor Shosturkin of the New York teams, Ilya Samsonov. But I, you know, those are guys who were invested heavily. They're young goaltenders. They've they have mixed NHL track records, um, but you know you're, you're you're not paying nothing for them. You're you're going to have to pay a little bit to acquire them, and then. You're you're locked into extending them for at least a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's very unclear. The trade market of goalies is is perennially weird. Yeah, I do find that it gets fairly consistent for the trade for a backup, mm-hmm. which I've heard some people toss out, and with remarkable consistency, trading for a backup is usually but a third round pick. Uh, at the at the deadline, if they're a rental, um, again, I don't see the Leafs doing that. So I think probably the overhanging thing is. We're kind of stuck with a Freddie Jack Campbell platoon, barring injury, in which case those scenarios are even worse. For this year, right? For this year, yeah. yeah. And then coming into next season, you do shake the leaves, I think, on a lot of these young goalies. But I would not be surprised if there's not an obvious taker there. If the Leafs do end up running a Jack Campbell slash older guy pl- platoon, and they try to rebuild their goaltending pipeline in the long term with deals like Vehivilainen or... Just hoping that Joe Wall gets it together with drafting goalies, which they've started doing more again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the one guy I, sh- I should mention here is just as kind of an, a, a very attractive goaltending candidate is uh, Philip Grubauer. Mm-hmm. He, he's going to be a UFA after this year, uh, and he'll be, uh, he'll be 30 by the time next season starts, more or less. He, he's a November birthday. Um, now, the problem is he's too attractive. Yeah. Um, 
He's just ridiculously handsome. Yeah, no, it's... um. I think Colorado has some incentive to want to keep him, for one thing, unless they're ready to, to give the keys over to Pavel Francouz. But someone will look at him and say, okay, that guy can be our starting goalie. Yeah. Y- and young, so I'm anticipating he right. commands the market. Yeah, right. youngish in the sense that, you know, the goaltending market is, is skewed towards these 36-year-olds at this point. So yeah, know, a guy yeah. who's 30, you can say, okay, yeah, you know, 30 to 33, he'll be fine. If we don't win, I'm out of a job anyway. It's the next GM's problem from ages 34 to 35. Um, yeah, I mean, the so, thing is that, and this is just a takeaway, but I keep thinking, and this is maybe a cautionary tale for the trade for the gold-plated prospect. Like, the most exciting young goalie in the NHL, probably for a while, was Carter Hart. And I'm not ruling out that he'll be that, but, you know, he was 21 and he looked really good. And this year, he's been terrible. And Philadelphia has kind of struggled through in spite of that. You just really don't know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I'm emphasizing a lot of uncertainty in this segment, but I want to, to to really hammer on that, that even people who know about goalies more than I do, there's still a lot of stuff that we just can't predict. And so I think that's why I shy away from wanting to spend a ton of cap space on the position because I don't think I can buy certainty. Yep, yeah. pretty much. Um, on Grubauer, just to... I just yep. had one last yep, point. About part of the reason he's going to be hard to acquire is that he he's going to get some shine in the playoffs, right? Because Colorado is a great team. They're going to be in some high-profile series. If he does well there, you know, that, that you know, even though it ne- shouldn't necessarily happen, good playoff series will increase value, especially for goaltenders who are inherently very visible in the playoffs. Yeah. Uh, someone probably this year will, will go on one of those runs. It may be someone rather unexpected. And whoever it is, don't sign their contract. <laughs> because mm. yeah I, I think that you know take Anton Kudobin for example in Dallas who's already coming back to earth at 34 um yeah. you had a bad take you wanted to do right yeah and and this bad take is at uh, twitter.com slash Pierre V Lebrun <laughs> and it's, it's just the entire timeline okay um so so he, Pierre was on one last night um <laughs> At 9.23 p.m., he tweets uh, after the Jets' Adam Lowry scores, uh, I believe to make it 3-2 in that game, mm-hmm. ultimately the game-winning goal. Big goal by Adam Lowry, pending UFA. Wonder what his next contract looks like. J.G. Pajot, a model for it? So... <laughs> I'm sorry, that's bad shit. <laughs> so <laughs> as he was saying that, um, the, the broadcast is like talking about Adam Lowry. And they said, that's his first goal in 17 games. <laughs> J.G. Pajot oh. makes $5 million for the next six years. Mm. That, yeah, sure. Let's pay $5 million to a guy with one goal in his last 17 games. Who is... Career high in points is 29. Yeah, who, who, yeah, who is... You know, I, I, I cannot get over how just <laughs> casually insane a take this is. I'm like, <laughs> this seems so obvious that Adam Lowry's agent was like talking to Pierre. It's like, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll look at that. Like, how can you think that Adam Lowry is worth $5 million over the next, you know, five to six years at age 29? And Lowry, he's not a bad player. He's, he's, yeah. he's a rather decent player. Sure. But um, in his, certainly in, uh, in his prime, he had really, really good defensive impacts, actually. Uh, 
but he he's not sorry he's not 29 he's 27 or 28 um but why paying <laughs> him that much money is a fireable offense you don't pay term to depth free agents this is the gym betting maneuver yes that's exactly what that would be except worse because i mean lowry is better than jay beagle probably at everything but faceoffs but also um, Lowry would be costing like two million more a year. <laughs> so yeah, and again, Lowry's a he he he's over his career has been a good defensive third liner, but he can't score. And at a certain point, when you're when you're paying that much money, you need people to do the hardest thing in the game, which is create goals. Yeah, right, absolutely. And you know, we kind of gave Lou a bit of a hard time for the JG Peugeot contract, but Peugeot has a little bit of offense, you know. And was coming off a very strong year offensively. That is not the case for Lowry. I don't know. The thing about Pierre Lebrun is that I, I don't think he means any harm. I no, first of he's, all want to say that. He's but. he's I, I feel like being an insider requires like a partial lobotomy in some ways. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, like well, it's just he kind of just has to be in tune. He's like a radio in and of himself, you know? Like, yeah. whatever the signal is coming into Pierre, Pierre will broadcast that signal. He'll play it for you. Mm-hmm. And evaluating him sometimes on what insane things come out of the radio almost feels like, well, really, your complaint is with the broadcasting. Yeah. But the thing is, is that that's also all of his analysis, which is pretty clearly just reflective of somebody told me this, and I was like, yeah, sure. So... Uh, in in Pierre's defense, he he walked it back immediately when when people were like, "Hey, the Pajot deal <laughs> sucked, and Lowry getting the same would be insane," uh, because Lowry isn't as good as Pajot. And yeah. LeBron's like, "Yeah, he won't get as much, but he's a real solid three C. Confidence Wheeler and Dubois perfectly." It's like, "Yeah, sure, he's a three C. Don't pay them five million. <laughs> the, the, the Leafs are paying Alex Kerfoot like three and a half million, and we're constantly like, "Oh man, three and a half for Kerfoot." It's not a bad deal, but I don't feel great about it. And, you know, if we if we trade, if we need to acquire anyone, Kerfoot's out the door. And it's like, mm. that that's orders of magnitude better than Adam Lowry uh, making, you know, $5 million. Like, that, that becomes one of the worst contracts in the league immediately if it's signed. It, it's just an absolutely insane suggestion, and he made it incredibly casually. Yeah, he was super down with it. And also... Just want to throw this out there. We're paying Pierre Engvall $1.25 million to be a depth center with basically no offense. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but Pierre Engvall has no offense at all. Yeah, but Pierre Engvall this season is on pace for what would be 24 points over a full year. That's exactly Adam Lowry's wheelhouse scoring-wise. Yeah, Adam Lowry really doesn't have much offense of his own either. Um, yeah. Pierre Engvall is like the, the great value uh, Adam Lowry. Right? He's the poor man's Adam Lowry. Yeah. That, that's, yeah exactly. that's the hope. All right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anyways, um, Pierre's not done. No. He, he tweeted after the Jets win, As I wrote this weekend, at home to Winnipeg would be so good. Would love to see this happen. No, to see it happen, sorry. Maybe too tall and ask. The Jets are a really good team, and if they added one more legit top four, man. <sighs> okay, look. <laughs> this has real disaster potential for us, because we have kind of... We often hem and haw about teams, and we say, look, a lot, a lot can happen. And a lot can happen. We both think the Jets suck. Yeah, and we're fucking playing with fire on that one. They've already beaten us twice. Yeah, and uh, again, 
the Jets can go far in the playoffs because any team can go far in the playoffs. They're going to make the playoffs because they've banked enough points already. Yeah. And they and they are a team that genuinely can outperform their expected goals by some amount. They have good goaltending. They have good shooters. They tend to get rush chances, which may be, you know, uh, undervalued a bit by traditional XG models. We've heard all this before. Mm-hmm. At the same time, they... This very good team has has scored 54 goals at 5-on-5 five five and given up 53. It's not as if they're kicking ass. Their numbers are so bad that they need a huge lift at 5v5 five five just to get average. Yeah. Right? So, I, I and after this three-game set, I genuinely don't know how someone can watch that three-game set and think, yep, Winnipeg is a really good team. Definitely a team that is not carried by superlative or in, in these games carried by superlative goaltending performance mm-hmm. right like, like i think that it was very clear on uh the game on thursday night when the leafs won four three in overtime connor hullabook allowed four goals and was by far the best player on the ice i firmly believe that i don't even think it was close and it's like that's what this team needs you know, they have that and they have Nick Ehlers running away on two-on-ones all the time. That's good. You'll do better than your XG at that. I do not believe that it's enough as soon as there's the slightest bit of drawback, you know, of decline uh, back in the direction of average. Yeah, and, it's, yeah. it's just... Uh, the, <laughs> you can tell I get frustrated by this because this this bugs me about a lot of mainstream hockey analysis is that... All it does is tell you the information that the standings tell you. It does not yes. provide any further detail, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can say, hey, the Jets are a team that have some really notable things going for them. They have a great goalie. They have elite shooters, right? And, and actually, more of their 5-on-5 um, five five outperformance has been due to their offense than their defense. It's, it's because they have those great shooters. And maybe those shooters are running hot, maybe not. But then you can say, well, if they got someone like Ekholm, he could can lift them at 5-on-5 five five at least a little bit, gives them more margin to work with. Sure, that's fine. You can mm-hmm. say that. You can say, hey, the Jets have a chance in this division because it's a weak division. They're already going to make the playoffs. And another addition makes them a team that no one really wants to face in the playoffs because, you know, they can beat anyone. Sure, say that. Don't give me this. The Jets are a really good team. <laughs> when they have a fucking 50% 5-on-5 ex- uh, five five goals for. Yeah, really, like, like it's not like they're blowing people out. No, like they're, they're not. They're yeah. a, a team that has, uh, they're a team that overall is like kind of average in a weak division. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's silly. It's really, really, really silly. I find. Yeah, and I do think that it stands out because there are teams that I really believe are better than the stats uh, make them out to be, and you see them play and you're like oh no there's talent there that's not being captured by the numbers and with the jets it's oh yes there's talent that's not reflected in 5v5 play driving and all that sort of stuff but they also look like ass and so (laughs) it's just very striking because there are so many teams where i've been like you know i could buy that they're doing something that's not captured there winnipeg is like oh i buy that i know what they're doing and that it's helping but it's not enough that this team is actually good. They will go as far as hot shooting and Hellebuck 
can take them, but they will go not one step farther. Pretty much. And it's like a lot of, a lot of their um, overall kind of goal differential outperformance is uh, through their power play as well. And again, they they have, they have a a power play that you can expect to be good. And again, one that could be uh, underrated by expected goals measures, which we know can be kind of tricky to deal with on the power play. Right. But again, that, that does not make them a, a, a particularly great team, mm-hmm. right? Like their their goal differential is the same as Edmonton and Montreal's. Yeah, and I think you could even say, okay, counting on their shooting, their goaltending, they deserve to be in that bracket. And you can say, I just trust that they can sustain this at a level where they're maybe as good as Edmonton, maybe I guess better than Montreal. I don't do that, but, like, I can see how you would get there. But, yeah, anyway, the point is is that we are going to look very stupid when the Jets win the Cup. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we definitely will. Other thing yeah. I'll say on, on LeBron, he, he gets in these phases where he, he like, roster baits a trade. Mm-hmm. And then he just won't shut up about how good a fit <laughs> that trade is for forever. He spent a good 18 months being like, I love the fit of Wayne Simmons to the Tampa Bay Lightning because they need some toughness and grit and yada, yada, yada. And It, it was to, insane. It I, was it like reading press releases. Like, I, I, anytime Wayne Simmons was mentioned in any way, like I would I would at Allen and be like, oh, you know, might end up in Tampa. You never know. You <laughs> love the fit there. Because it, it, was, it, was so, it was so consistent. And this is the exact yeah. same language he's using with Ekholm. Yeah, and he's I'm, already fantasy traded him to both the Bruins and the Jets which, in one ew, article. Which, fucking hell. <laughs> For the record, both of them could use him. Yes. Like, I get where he's coming from. It's a it's a good idea. It's, I it's think the Jets a, probably like have a look terrible trade or anything. It's just like, yeah. he won't shut up about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I always have sort of a soft spot for LeBron because I feel like... He's just being Pierre LeBron, you know. It's it's like, a, it's a little bit like Jim Matheson. Yeah, it's just like he's just doing his thing, man. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't really mean any harm. Right, and, like the I mean, yeah. I, I I submit that the uh, Jim Matheson clean and jerk me tweet is it's <laughs> art. Like you know, there's a whole big thing with uh, NFTs and people selling tweets, and it basically just seems like a scam. But I, uh, I would yeah. pay money for that tweet. <laughs> It would, yeah, I think it was worth it. You can frame it and hang it on the wall. But it's so, it's so innocent. Like, he just, he really was like, they could all clean and jerk me. And he was like, yeah, this is a fine thing to do. He didn't delete it either. He was just sort of like, well, all right. Well, that's one thing I respect with math is that he, he just, he goes down with the shit, man. Yeah. He, he doesn't delete. He well, he doesn't even double down on stuff. He just says stuff and then forgets yeah. it. He just like will casually say some whack shit. And then just yeah. leave it there, and you know people dunk on it for the next however long, and he just doesn't care. Yeah, you, you know, like there's a purity to Jim Matheson that you have to respect. Like he just is, he is what he is, and you'll have to accept it. Like there's nothing calculated about it. He's like a Psyduck given human form. <laughs> oh, there it is. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> You know what? I can't top that. Let's end the podcast because Psyduck in human form is going to be the peak. That's it. <laughs> all right. So thank you everyone for, for listening. Uh, you can catch all of mine and Fuleman's work at pencilpenpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFuleman. Um, keep sending us ideas and tweeting us ideas, by the way. Uh, we we you know, mentioned last week that we uh, kind of put out a call for them. 
and, and most of them sucked, but some were useful, uh, including, you know, one that we discussed today. And, you know, we, we do actually have a sheet where we go through these and, um, you know, if you have ideas or stuff you want us to cover, by all means, let us know. Um, so thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon.